This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash radio 4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. In 1678, Titus Oates claimed he'd discovered a Catholic conspiracy <coughs> to shoot, excuse me, to shoot King Charles II. He knew all the details. He'd invented every one of them himself. It's one of the great works of historical fiction. For three years, his fabricated Popish plot inflamed fears that there were secret Catholics in power, conspiring to return England to Catholicism under the king's brother James, Duke of York. Soon, Charles banned Catholics from London, crowds paraded burning effigies of the Pope through the city, vigilantes hunted for signs of supposed sympathisers, throwing them in prison, there were executions of innocent priests, lords, even archbishops. Titus Oates basked in the adulation of a grateful public. Though he was eventually caught out, the fear of plots and of the mob left a deep mark on politics and religious tolerance for decades. With me to discuss Titus Oates and his purpose plot are Claire Jackson, Senior Tutor and Director of Studies in History at Trinity Hall, University of Cambridge, Mark Knights, Professor of History at the University of Warwick, and Peter Hines, Associate Professor in English at Plymouth University. Claire Jackson... What was the problem about being a Catholic in 1670s England? Well, I think we need to draw a distinction perhaps between day-to-day realities and popular perceptions. It's probably a theme we're going to come back to this morning about what actually happened and realities. But the day-to-day reality is that Catholics are a very small minority. The sort of underground nature of Catholic devotion makes it quite difficult to know exactly how many, but maybe 60,000 out of a population of maybe five to five and a half million. So just over 1% or even in a densely cosmopolitan uh, city like London, not more than 2%, but disproportionately perceived to be a much greater threat than that. On a day-to-day basis, the majority of Catholics would simply want to continue their practising their pre-Reformation faith. They'd want to stay under the radar of the state. But there was a whole edifice of penal laws dating back to the Elizabethan and Jacobean periods um, that made attendance at Church of England services on a weekly basis compulsory for all men and women, adult men and women, uh, also to take communion three times a year. And if people failed to do that, they were liable to be indicted or prosecuted for recusancy. And some of the fines facing them would be quite large, things like standing fines of £20 a month, which a modern multipliers are quite difficult, but maybe something like £2,000 a month. So really quite ruinous. And again, I think we probably come back to that difference between the general, I mean, the default reflex perception for a lot of English would be that Catholics pose a huge threat. But when it came to individuals that they actually knew, people in their locality, neighbours, friends, they might be much more nervous about indicting somebody that would then face financial ruin. Um, So I think, again, there's a sort of difference between realities and perceptions. It's, it's strange, though, isn't it? You've talked about 1% or 2% in a population of 5 million, uh, clustered mainly in Lancashire and in London, although they were scattered all over the place. And yet it flared up into this enormous conflagration which lasted for three years. What is it about this 1% or 2% that is potentially going to cause so much trouble? What history is brought to that bonfire before it's lit? 
Well, history casts a very long shadow over this period. I mean, right back to the Reformation, it's been part of Protestant thinking that there is a popish plot that flares up in different times and, and different there places. Was, so they were, it wasn't yeah. based on nothing, yes. <laughs> so going back to the Elizabethan period, there were lots of uh, conspiracies associated with Mary, Queen of Scots. Then there was the threat of the Spanish Armada. Then there was the gunpowder plot. Then there was the Irish Rebellion of 1641. And this becomes a very persuasive That's historical rebellion that wiped out almost all the Protestants. Yes, that was aimed at sort of annihilating Protestants in Ireland and one of the themes that we hear in the Popish plot is 41 is come again so there's a great sort of historical rationale for believing in a sort of generic Popish plot but also geographically um, Protestantism is not doing that well at this stage in the sort of European geopolitics it's being consigned to the northern peripheries the big European superpowers France and Spain are Catholic and Protestantism you know, is, is, is flourishing but very much on the fringes of Holland northern Germany Scandinavia Scotland and England but there's always again Ireland out to the west so this fear of potential encirclement geographically plus a history of popish plots is really quite a toxic mix. But on the whole you're telling the listeners now that on the whole when Charles Charles comes to the throne <coughs> Uh, after Cromwell, there are a few Catholics and they're going about their business and they're not really troubling anyone. Well, few Catholics could afford to ha- to pay those kind of recusancy fines. There's probably a lot of people that we dis- we term church papists yeah. who simply to protect their own sort of well-being, their, their livelihoods, would um, continue to practice on a sort of clandestine basis but would attend Anglican service weekly and would occasionally take communion simply not to be liable for recusancy laws. But again, there's probably a difference within the Catholic community between the majority of people trying to stay under the state's radar and simply be quiet, um, who who had a record of civil war loyalty to the king, but then fear of post-Reformation orders like the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, who are literally on a mission uh, with international finance and backing to re-Catholicise England and bring it back into the fold. That they would be the much smaller minority, but again, one that would loom much larger in the popular imagination. Yes, sort of Pope stormtroopers in a way, weren't they? Okay. Mark Knights, what was it about Charles II's personal views that made people anxious? So I think there's um, a longer history going back to his uh, troubles, really, uh, before his restoration in 1660, um, when he had been in exile and courting the favour of Catholic powers in order to regain his throne. So there's a a Catholicising influence on him even before he takes to the throne. Um, But once uh, he is restored uh, in 1660, um, he seeks to... Uh, moderate the rather punitive religious settlement that Parliament wanted to impose, both on Catholics and on Protestant dissenters, that's to say people who couldn't conform to the established Church of England. Um, And um, Charles in 1662 and then again in 1672 um, tried to use his power as king to suspend the legislation which had been enacted against Catholics. And that created a lot of suspicion about his real intentions. Um, uh, Coupled to that was the fact that his brother, James Duke of York, um, had also, uh, by the late 1660s, shown evidence of uh, uh, his distancing from the Church of England and embracing the Catholic faith. And so Charles's problem really was about perceptions of Catholicism at court. Um, and those are also exacerbated by the fact that from 1670, 
his mistress, uh, the Duchess of Portsmouth, was both Catholic um, and French, um, and uh, therefore sort of personified the two fears that uh, Englishmen at the time had about the threat from, from popery. Yes, and he did try, didn't he? He tried to be more inclusive, and it didn't last very long. That's right. These these attempts in 1662 and 1672 to uh, meliorate the punitive laws against the Catholics was very soon reversed by Parliament. Uh, they weren't having any of that. Um, uh, and well, one we had of the Clarendon Code. That's right. So in the um, early 1660s, uh, there's a set of new penal laws passed against the Catholics and against the Protestant dissenters to try and uh, buttress the restored Church of England. Um, and Charles worked quite hard to try and unpick some of that, but uh, the forces in Parliament um, were overwhelming. And yet, in politics, he was stuck because he wanted to make alliances with France, didn't he? Uh, <clears throat> the most powerful part of Europe, which suited the English at that time to make an alliance with them, and they, of course, were Catholic. That's right. And in, in 1672, England went to war against the Dutch, the other only really major pro Protestant power in Europe at the time, in alliance with Catholic France. And that was one of the big turning points, I think, in, in popular opinion. Why was the king taking Protestant England to war against Protestant Holland in alliance with the Catholic uh, France? Um, and that retrospectively seems a turning point to it. So Edward Deering, for example, who keeps a diary in this period, records in 1681 that that's one of the major turning points in this uh, anxiety about the growth of popery and arbitrary government, as uh, Andrew Marvell was to put it. So there's a, there's a general residual uh, worry about Catholics. You've talked about the Spanish Armada and Guy Fawkes and so on. That's festering away and people know about that and people have got through the Reformation, although a lot of them don't like it, um, but they, they're holding on to it. Uh, and then this... Th so these, these are embers which can be brought to flames quite quickly and we have our man Titus Oates Peter and you're going to tell us about this disastrous magnificent fabricator Well Titus Oates yeah, was a, something of a rogue um, the, the history of, of disappointment and humiliation and failure and failure yes through his education um, and um, and um, he was a, he was the son of a, a Baptist preacher um, he was born in 1649 um, and it's quite useful to separate him into his into, into several periods: his education, um, his time as a Protestant preacher, and then the time when he gets in amongst the Catholics, which is really important in 1677. Um, but it's worthwhile just just outlining a few details about Pope's history. Um, and so he was a um, he was sent to a couple of schools, um, and he was expelled from schools, usually for reasons to do with money. Um, he was got into disputes about 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 money. Um, he went up to Cambridge. Um, he was sent to Gondolin Keys College. Um, he was transferred to St John's College, and then he was kicked out of um, Cambridge again over dispute about money. So he left Cambridge without a degree. He wouldn't pay for a coat that somebody had made for him. Exactly. Yeah, he disputed right. over, over um, a, a bill with a, with a tailor. Um, 
1670, he's managed to get a licence to preach and he takes holy orders. And in 1673, he gets himself into a living in the village of Bobbing in, in, in Kent. But this goes very badly. He's accused by his parishioners of drunkenness, lewd behaviour, unorthodox views, blasphemous views, even of stealing. Now, so money comes into this again. He's stealing for, for, for whatever reason. Um, so he's dismissed from this living. He returns to Hastings, where his father has a... Um, a living and um, becomes a curate for a while but at this moment he does something very extraordinary which has resonances later he accuses a schoolmaster it seems like a prefabricated scheme to get himself a job in a school he accuses a schoolmaster of sodomy with a pupil um, which is a total fabrication um, and um, this is discovered and he's he, uh, he's bound over and he um, uh, pending trial but he flees to London so it's a catalogue of, um, of, of of disgrace, really, that's emerging. Um, and then he gets chucked out of that. He becomes a naval chaplain and gets chucked out of that for sodomy. Exactly, yeah, accusations of so sodomy. So here there. we have our man, and he comes to 1677 when he converts to Catholicism. Why did he do that? Well, he represented that in contradictory ways. Initially, he said it was it. Well, he he did it in order to go undercover to discover a plot. Um, when the plot was at its height and he was enjoying the success of the plot um, this was the reason he put himself in danger he says for king and country um, put his soul and body in danger by converting to Catholicism in order to provide decent cover in order he could uncover a plot but later he changed that story and said that it was a genuine conversion actually I was the, the term he used he said was I was seduced by the Popish sirens into a belief into the Catholic Church um, but nonetheless he self-aggrandised himself again this was a, um, a divine hand of providence had placed him he was a divine instrument who placed him amongst the Catholics to find out the plot One of the many curiosities about his life that intrigued me there he had this patron didn't he who, when he converted to Catholicism sent him to one place in mm. Europe which is very important that he goes to Europe yeah, after another absolutely. he failed at the first place he failed at the second place one he didn't know enough Latin B he got into, the second one he got into trouble again but he's being well looked after by this bloke why is that? Well, there are various reasons. Um, so Father Richard Strange That's is, him, yeah. is um, uh, um, the, the kind of head of the, the Jesuit order in England, and he takes him under his wing. Now, one historian, um, John Kenyon, assumed that this was because the reason he managed to get credibility with Father Strange or get him with the Catholic Church was because of his homosexuality. Um, which is one way of thinking about it. There are more generous um, reasons. Well, one, one, homosexuality can be generous. Yeah, I mean, in sense, no, that, that was a sort of aspersion cast yeah. upon him. But um, I think um, the uh, another reason might, might be that Father Strange genuinely saw a soul to be saved. Um, um, and well, he, he generally saw a very clever man, which <laughs> in a perverse way he was. <laughs> but he's, you're right, he sent him off to um, to Spain, to an English college in Spain, um, and then he left there under disgrace, came back to England. But um, Father Strange had faith in him again. He took him off to Saint-Omer in, in North France, but he left there in disgrace again, back in England. And this is where... <laughs> it's a wonderful pedigree, isn't it? This man is going to turn England upside down <laughs> for three years. Execution, un unbelievable. So this is the chap we have on our hands, Claire. Right, he teamed up with somebody called Israel Tongue. Israel Tongue uh, was a, 
You tell us briefly about Israel, Tom, and his vehement anti-Catholicism, and then let's get cracking. Yeah, it was a bit of a toxic mix between the two individuals. So Tong is much older, born 1621. He's already in his late 50s, uh, compared to Oates, who's in his late 20s. And Tong is... Perhaps, I mean, there are there are dimensions to his character that are, that are less attractive, but he's perhaps a bit more straightforward. I mean, he's a, an academic who's got various degrees, but again has a life of sort of serial disappointments, failures that then inbreed, engender this sort of seething resentment. So he's elected a fellow of a college in the 1650s, the short-lived Cromwellian College in Durham, but then it closes. He's a chaplain to an Anglican, an Anglican chaplain to a garrison in Dunkirk, but then it's sold to the French. But then worst of all, he's given a really ambitious opportunity... Uh, to take a living in the city of London, St Mary Staining, in June 1666. But less than three months later, there's the Great Fire of London and his whole church and parish go up in flames. And he blames the Catholics. And he blames the Catholics, as many people did. And it seems to really um, breed in him a persecution complex, a belief that this popish plot is out there. So the key thing is, uh, up, and I haven't found it yet, it pops, well, I haven't. Why did, how did they work this up, the two of them? Well, I think um, he is looking for somebody to give this credibility. Oates is is clever, as you've said. I mean, he knows which which buttons to press with people. So he flatters Tong and say, and even claims that he's been offered fifty pounds by the Jesuits to assassinate Tong for anti-Jesuitical writings that he'd written that actually hadn't been very successful and were feeding this persecution complex. So Oates sort of flatters Tong and says, you know, we we should work together and give and he's Why offering. Why does he need Tong? Well, Tung can offer money. I mean, this ah. is somebody who's come with a serial history of expulsion and all sorts of things. For Tung, this is somebody who's claiming to have details on plots that he believes in his own mind are out there. Where did he get the idea? Just one thing, I know it's ridiculous. Where did he get the idea from? Because it ran and ran. Where did he sit down? In which pub, at which time did he sit down and say, I know, I've got a cunning plot? Sorry, we're Oats. We're on Oats. Um, well, no, no, have a go. Uh, What, Peter? Well, I think Oates was, as Claire said, he was destitute in poverty. He'd been uh, this career of serial disappointments. Mm. He was in London and he needed to take it with somebody. He'd met Israel Tong um, briefly before and he falls back on his company because here's some access back into London society and he strings Tong along. Um, he claims he's still undercover as a Jesuit, you know, in, in former on the Jesuits. Um, and Tong buys this story completely. So there's not a close alliance between the two of them. He's using Tong. I um, get all that, and it's all it, very good background, but when did they say, let's work out a plot that somebody's going to kill the king, and we know who, and we're going to... Well, it is interesting that Tong is very keen that this is something that's written down. Mm. I mean, he's t- he at any point Oates could sort of abscond again, and all this sort of credibility that that Tong sees of a plot would would vanish with him. So that's why he's very keen that Oates should swear his articles or his depositions. Because uh, Mark Knight, what Oates could bring, although we haven't cracked the the, the creative moment yet, uh, <laughs> what Oates could bring was a lot of stuff. I mean, he'd been around. The fact that he'd been in Europe, as Peter was saying, meant that he'd picked up an awful lot about the way the Catholics, and particularly the Jesuits, operated. And so he was, in a sense, he had used, as it were, the talents that an undercover agent should have. So he could bring to the table lots of names, lots of instances, some of them accurate in, in the event, although the whole, the whole capsule fabricated. Um, so can you give us some idea of... Uh, I've just outlined it very crudely, the substance of his claims. Yes, uh, and it's, good, it's important to recognise, of course, that he embellishes it over a, a long period of time. But initially, the core of it 
was that there was this Jesuit plot to reconvert England forcibly to Catholicism. And that involved uh, assassinating uh, Charles II, the black bastard, as the Jesuits called him, um, in shorthand. Um, and it wasn't even shorthand. <laughs> <laughs> she uh, says all they wanted to say in two words. And Oates revealed quite graphic details about how this was to be accomplished. Named individuals who were um, alleged to have uh, attempted to shoot the king um, and their locks on their um, muskets uh, jamming at the crucial moment or Jesuits being sent with foot-long daggers which were six inches wide to plunge into the king. Um, so really graphic uh, detail. Um, was the uh, silver bullets there? The, the, yeah, there was all sorts of things. And, uh, and the foolishness of having the king having the same walk in the same park most days. Exactly. St. James. Exactly. Uh, but it's incredibly detailed because, as you say, he has these snippets of information. He's able to say on certain days, on the 24th of April 1678 for example there was this big consult of all the Jesuits in London 50 of them who were all in, in this plot um, uh, and so that type of evidence has a certain credibility about it if, if you don't know how do you, how do you sift through that if you're the government uh, trying to work out whether there's any substance to this at all he's, he's got a basic credibility, he's got a fantastic memory as well about all the inventions that he's, that he's made and, and he's um, very bullish about it all, he can tell a good story um, Can I go across to Peter Hines now? So he's got the good story they made it, he made it up, tongues uh, bankrolling him and an accomplice, and and an intermediary as well, <clears throat> because tongue knows people who know the king, yes. so he's got his setup there. So how did it gain real traction? It's it could be just another ridiculous notion floating in the edges of King James, uh, um, uh, 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 St James Park. James, I'm going all over the place. James Park, right? Um, how did it gain traction? There are a number of ways I think. To start with. To, 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 um, to develop what Mark was saying about the details of the plot, that's really important. You mentioned the silver bullet, this, this idea that, that Charles is in St James Park every day. Well, he, he Oates accuses two men, um, um, John Grove and Thomas Pickering, of attempting to assassinate the king at St James's Park on his regular walk by, by shooting him. But this has failed on a number of occasions. Um, the flint was loose in the, in the rifle, the gunpowder was wet. Um, lots of lurid details, like they, they chose to chew the bullets to make them jagged in order that it would do more damage and make, make it more possible to kill Charles II. So these details are really resonant, really lots of lovely colour he puts into the details. Um, but what's also important is that it's not simply a plot that is going to happen. Here is a plot that's ongoing. We've been damn lucky to, just to, um, that Charles isn't dead already because people are trying to assassinate him right now. So this is quite a resonant um, detail as well. But going back to Claire's point, he made lots of grander claims, slightly vague claims about invasion forces and rebellion. So 20,000 Scots apparently were prepared to rise in rebellion. A similar number in Ireland. There were 20,000 infantrymen, 5,000 cavalry ready to rise in Ireland. France, importantly, was... Um, 
was ready to provide troops and arms and ship them over to Ireland. So this idea of Catholic encirclement was really, really big. So he, the small details and the big detail, the, the, big, the bigger picture were, were important. Didn't the King's diplomatic service and his secret agents have a better, have a better access to information than Oates? I mean, couldn't the king say, look, this is rubbish. My chap in Ireland says this is rubbish. My chap in Scotland says this is rubbish. Couldn't he do that? Was that not possible? Well, I'm not sure how organised the um, bureaucracy was in in the period in those places. Well, clearly not, because they didn't get any information. It was just a question. Okay, Claire, in 1678, there was a major factor which really pushed it forward and and gave it serious importance, and that was the... (coughs) The discovery of the body of Sir Edmund Godfrey at the bottom of Primrose Hill, a London suburb now, but then out in the country. Um, And why was that important? So this is the magistrate before whom Oates has been on two occasions in September 1678 to swear the accuracy and the the truthfulness of his depositions. Um, He is a fairly straight-laced, he's often described as quite a querulous individual, who is clearly a little bit discomforted, not only by the sort of radical, sort of serious nature of the the allegations, doesn't follow them up officially, immediately, obviously talks to people, Um, suffers a sort of unquietness of mind. Yes, he's Protestant, but uh, although he's quite a straight-laced person who takes his responsibilities as a magistrate very seriously in terms of sort of suppressing vice, he's not known as a rabid sort of anti-Catholic magistrate. Um, but is clearly discomforted by obviously a lot of what Oates has said to him, um, but then disappears on Saturday um, in October. Saturday, the so they've gone to him to get it down on tongue, wants it down on paper. Yeah. This is sworn evidence. Yes. This is not messing about. Yeah. They've been to a proper Protestant, serious magistrate, reliable figure, and who believes them. So this is now a sworn document they can shake in everybody's faces. And then quite soon afterwards, I think a few weeks after... But two weeks afterwards, he, he disappears yeah. on Saturday, the uh, 12th of October. And then uh, on Thursday, the 17th of October, his body is discovered in a ditch, as you said, near Primrose Hill. Uh, later, it's, um, it's shown that there are sort of strangulation marks around his neck and his own sword has been very sort of viciously driven through him, emerging sort of on, on his chest, emerging out his back. And this is the event, the catalyst that sort of electrifies or transforms what's been a sort of lingering alarm and anxiety and perhaps scepticism into, if, if, for those who were looking for it, concrete evidence that there must be a plot out there. Can you be even more specific about why it sets off the alarm bells? Because this is somebody who was in possession of this information who has now either known too much or been taken out if you believe that Sir Edmund Berry Godfrey was murdered by papists. And we still don't know who murdered him. We still, it's one of the great unsolved murders of history. And right from the outset, there are people who come up with other theories. But this is really where public opinion begins to really play its own agency. Because as far as the public opinion are concerned, this is now proof, if proof were needed, that there is a popish plot out there, there are blood thirty Jesuits, and it will only be a matter of time before somebody else is taken out. Mark Knights, <clears throat> so we now have two levels going on here. <clears throat> we have a growing belief in Oates, and we have a, a, a beginning, an embryonic disbelief. Now, who were the disbelievers the dis- in, his, in what he was saying? The disbelievers uh, initially included the king. <laughs> um, uh, so when Oates was initially revealing his information, he gave some details which Charles II knew to be false. Charles was there. Charles was there, he was listening to all this, so at one point Titus Oates describes Don John of Austria 
um, who he claimed to have met as a as a tall fair man and Charles II knew him as a short dark man um, so there were some um, clear uh, uh, problems with some of some of the evidence but it's not really until I think the summer of 1679 some time after these initial revelations that real skepticism starts to to kick in and that's largely because in a sense Oates and his cronies push the story too far um, so they make the accusation that um, uh, Charles's uh, Queen um, has been involved in in the plot, um, and the allegation is that uh, Catherine had uh, encouraged and even paid her physician to poison the king. Um, now Charles, uh, as as everyone knows, um, had a rather uh, colourful sexual uh, life outside of uh, the, the marriage chamber, and. Uh, I think he he felt an obligation to his wife to vindicate her. Um, uh, And um, so the trial of Wakeman, as it occurs in in the summer of 1679... You're reaching ahead. I mean, the the, the scepticism bit is okay, but we're in 1679. We've got two years of uproar to go. The scepticism is a little bit. Uh, the, the uproar and the widespread belief in it and the yes. panic that ensues is a very big bit, and that's what we're talking about. Yes. Uh, um, and we'll come to Wakeman in a moment. Or do you want to get him over with now? Well, we could do him now because um, he, he's the physician who was accused of uh, poisoning or attempting to poison the king, and his trial is the first real test uh, of because Oates' Oates evidence. Because Oates accused him, of course. Because Oates accused him. And the um, presiding judge, um, a guy called Sir William Scroggs, um, goes out of his way to question Oates's evidence because there was a lot riding on this. If Wakeman was convicted, the Queen would be implicated, and that way you know, a very, very large crisis lay. So uh, Scroggs steers a very uh, neat path between. Um, uh, trying to, to uh, expose the faults of Oates's um, testimony whilst still trying to maintain a belief in the yeah, plot as a whole. Wakeman got off, nobody believed him, and the plot roared even louder, didn't it, Claire? Uh, how many executions were, came about as a direct result from Oates's claim? Well, the key thing, going back a moment to um, Barry Godfrey's death, is that it also introduces a whole new cast of informers, people who can now claim to be able to solve this mystery and introduce other evidence against different people. Because there's money in informing. There's huge amounts of money in the sorts of people... Who is giving it and what sort of money? uh, Usually secret service funds. Um, when, When one begins to look at some of the amounts of money and you try and multiply them up, for people who have come from pretty dodgy backgrounds. I mean, there's a whole sort of cast of people who begin to enter. Um, It's also coincidental that a few days after Barry Godfrey's body is found, Parliament meets um, on the... So Barry Godfrey's body's found on the Thursday, and by chance, Parliament happens to meet on the Monday and immediately sets up its own inquiry. So... What was really quite a limited knowledge of this plot and notes his claims ha- suddenly becomes much wider. Privy Council looking into it. Yeah, but then the, commi- the Commons... Charles sets up his own powers to look into it. But then the Commons in, uh, set up their own parliamentary committees um, and then almost the Court of Public Opinion decides that somebody needs to be found guilty. And although Wakeman is acquitted, there's quite a cast of characters before that, lesser people, if you like, on, on the sort of political scale of things, who are nevertheless convicted on the testimony of, of these informers, particularly in relation to Godfrey's death. And the other interesting thing sort of culturally is the extent to which 
Barry Godfrey becomes this sort of Protestant martyr very quickly for the whole plot. Um, and that's the point also at which be- sort of disbelief in the plot almost becomes, as people describe it, its own form of heresy. That the minute now you start saying, I'm yes. not so sure about this, then there's a sort of type of heresy um, going on. So it rolls over in this most extraordinary way that it just, you've talked uh, very clearly, Mark, about the lack of evidence. It doesn't seem to matter. It's got its own head of steam. It rolls. If you disbelieve, that proves you're concealing something. They come to your house, wreck your house, look for stuff. And it's on that, on that, on that strange... How many people... I mean, I mean, there's no respecter of titles. Lords, archbishops, executed. Uh, absolutely. I mean, in the end, it's probably about 23 individuals that are executed sort of directly related to the plot and then about another seven or something die in, die in prison. Um, but the sheer seriousness of what is going on here. And Scroggs does explain that at the very first trial of Sir Edward Coleman and says to, to says to Oates, you know, to take away a man's life on a false oath is murder. And that's precisely why you know, perjury and um, punishments are so vicious. But yes, I mean, as, as almost today, whenever a great event happens, there's enormous pressure on the authorities to find those responsible and bring them to justice. Um, and then one begins to see Barry Godfrey appearing on medals and playing cards and in processions. And, you know, he sort of becomes very sort of central to the whole plot's credibility. Talking about processions, they were part of the the action, weren't they? <coughs> weren't they? Uh, um, we had the Popish the marches with the effigy of the Pope at one stage, the effigy was filled with live cats, so when they burned him, the cat squealed, and that was supposed to be the Pope in hell. Is that right? That's right. These um, these processions are, are absolutely fascinating. They're, they're very well-organised processions. Um, there must have been some um, financial support, some serious financial support for these processions. They happened on the 17th of November, the accession day of Queen Elizabeth I. That was an important resonance as well, the kind of Protestant Queen um, couldn't help but resonate in certain ways in this Catholic crisis. But they were extraordinary events. These 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 floats, the pageants as they were called, about a dozen of them, would, would process through London with various different um, figures displayed. Explain the 200,000 people were there, two-fifths of the population. Yeah, well, uh, I, I think London. that's an exaggeration yeah, but sure. from, a, from an invested person, but it could, couldn't have been too outlandish an, an exaggeration for it to have any credibility. So tens of thousands, at least, I would imagine, extraordinarily well attended. People clamouring actually to get the best positions. You know, um, there were places being sold near Temple Bar where the big, the final, f- the culmination of the procession happened, where the, the this effigy was, the Pope was tipped into the fire. There were the window places were being sold for vast sums of money. People were clamouring to get to see the see this this culminating moment. It's a wonderful um, example of public public demonstration and a performance event. So I would <coughs> mark there would mark nice. There would be some politicians who welcomed this. It played into their hands. Who were they? Absolutely. So as, as Claire was saying, these revelations come just at the start of, of parliamentary session. And there are forces in Parliament who want to bring down two big beasts. The first is Charles II's Prime Minister, the Earl of Danby. Uh, and Danby was impeached. That's to say there's a formal parliamentary trial process launched against Danby. The bigger scalp is that of James, Duke of York, the king's brother, um, because uh, he was the next heir to the throne. and The king had no children. The king had no children, no legitimate children, anyway. Um, and uh, MPs, many MPs uh, in Parliament, were petrified of the prospect 
of a popish successor, to use the language of the day. And uh, they used the popish plot as a way of bringing the succession issue <coughs> into Parliament and um, to uh, bring in legislation uh, which would exclude James from the succession. So it gets more and more fascinating because this fiction takes off uh, he, he's being very heavily criticised which takes off and is uncontrollable and yet it feeds into other facts so the facts of history are determined by the fiction of this of this, of this, this man uh, Peter, can you just briefly tell us it, it began to achieve written form as well uh, it's put out an extraordinarily expensively produced book The True Narrative of the Horrid Plot Yes, these narratives um, were, were fascinating. It, it, it was interesting that it, was eight, it wasn't until April 1679 that a, an official document came out detailing the actual events of the plot. And so there was lots of speculation and rumour that had been buzzing around since um, the Privy Council met in September 78, yeah. which actually, we go back to the point about traction, couldn't help but fuel you know, the, the uncertainty, the rumours flying around. People were debating the details of the plot, not the substance of it, really. That was quite, quite important. But these, these narratives um, were, were a publishing phenomenon, really. It's a gr- the, the, the usual sort of pamphlet discourse you would have in the period would be these quarto, small, sort of small paperback form. This was a big folio, fine paper, wonderfully printed. Who was paying for it? Um, well, it was funded by um, booksellers... Um, so they were looking for a market, and they exactly, got a market. So yeah. they got their money back on the on on the open market. Okay, Claire Jackson. What we brought in the uh, um, James, the king's brother, who was to be become king. Uh, he was he was a Catholic. He was known to be a Catholic. Can you tell us his state of mind while this was going on? Yeah, I mean, this makes him very vulnerable. Um, there's been discussion about the dangers of a popish successor, but in this kind of mood of panic and hysteria, those become all the more acute. I mean, bringing in legislation to try and exclude him on the grounds of Catholicism isn't the only option. I mean, people have been talking about this for some time. They've been talking about the possibility that Catherine, uh, Charles might be induced to divorce his Catholic queen, um, Catherine of Baganza, and marry a Protestant, or that he might retrospectively legitimise his eldest um, illegitimate son, the Duke of Monmouth, or that limitations might be placed on James and he would be treated almost as a sort of... Re- there would be a regent put in place. But this actually becomes a bit more urgent. I mean, if, if Charles really is liable to be assassinated in the park any day, we don't have time to wait for him to get divorced and marry someone else and have children. Um, so it does place James and his position in really under the spotlight. And there's a lot of debate in Parliament about whether if the sort of restrictions that are being placed on Catholics, that they should be placed within a sort of 20 mile exclusion zone around London, shouldn't James shouldn't that apply to James as well and there are sort of arguments on both sides saying people the saying, tax were brought in. Yeah, people saying keep him near keep him near Charles um, don't send him into the arms of people like Louis XIV but eventually Charles decides quite decisively to both sort of banish James um, first to sort of Brussels and The Hague and then to Scotland as well as also to banish um, his eldest son um, the Duke of Monmouth and one begins to see a bit of a rivalry between those two because Monmouth becomes the Protestant sort of saviour to the question um, of the succession if only it could be found that really Charles had married Monmouth's mother Lucy Walter and just as there's a sort of 
traction about people's readiness to believe in Titus Oates's plot, you can see the sort of positive desire of people to believe in a black box that would show that ultimately Charles and Lucy had been married. Uh, and it's Charles who comes out and says, you know, publicly many times, I've only ever been married to Queen Catherine. This isn't going to work. Um, but James, meanwhile, is in The Hague or is in Brussels or is in Scotland having to find out about exclusion um, remotely. Now, we have to, I'm afraid, we have to go like the clappers for the next few minutes because... It's been wonderful talking about it, but it came to an end after three years, and we've talked about executions, demonstrations, changes in the history based on fictitious evidence and so on. How Can you give us the two main factors that made it peter out? I'm sorry about this, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it, it, developing a point that was made earlier, that the, the, it began with Oates and his evidence, and there were lots of proclamations were being issued in order to bring in other informers to get um, more information on the plot and this had the effect of drawing lots of disreputable people in and the more witnesses that came in the, the more unsavory characters that were drawn in and the less credible the evidence got over time and more and more people were being caught out in trials there was the wonderful name thomas dangerfield came in stephen dugdale came in giving evidence as well but um often this evidence didn't take and they were discredited as witnesses and so over time the cast of characters becomes incredibly flaky. And the king didn't get assassinated. Exactly. That's a good, very good point. Um, Mark, what happened to Titus Oates? So let's say his cover is blown. Yes. Uh, we're using this <laughs> jug. In the, never mind. It is. So what happens to him? So um, initially, not a lot. And it's not until 1684 that the wheels really come off for, for Titus Oates. When so he's, that's uh, six years on. Uh, yes, I mean, it's yeah, quite a significant right. period. Yeah. So, so uh, initially, it's the result of um, James, Duke of York, uh, taking a, a, an action against Oates uh, for having uh, called him a traitor. And a huge fine of £100,000 is imposed on Oates, and he's slung into prison. And then there are two further trials uh, later in 1684 for perjury. Um, uh, and Oates is uh, put in the pillory, uh, lots of stuff thrown at him. Um, he's whipped through London on two occasions. Um, he says his, his back has got thousands of lashes on it and he's slung into prison where he languishes for the entire reign of James II from 1685 to 1688. Come the revolution of 1688 with the invasion of William, the displacement of James, Oates is released from uh, prison He's rehabilitated a little bit. He's given back a small pension. Um, he re-enters the limelight, but he never quite recaptures his, his earlier glory. But he does live for 1727, which isn't a bad life. Uh, finally, uh, can you tell us, was this inevitable or was this the action of this strange man? Well, I think these sort of plots were a recurrent feature of the 17th century, but I think the period that Mark's just been talking about, I mean, what's really happened to sort of bring the wheels off the plot is that the political ground has changed. Charles II, through strategic use of the prerogative and actually seizing the ground, playing on people's fears that if 41 has come again, that means civil war, actually promotes a sort of backlash of loyalism. So Charles II regains um, Parliament and discredits this whole idea of incipient panic. Well, thank you, and thank you very much for going at such speed. Thanks to Claire Jackson, Mark Knights and Peter Hines. Next week we'll be talking about the Muses, the Greek goddesses on Mount Helicon. Thank you very much for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. We're now on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. What did we miss out? Peter? Ireland. 
We mentioned it twice. Mentioned it. I mean, it's it's interesting. It's almost the sort of the dog that didn't bark. I mean, if this plot really was going to have traction, one would have felt that there would have been much more resonances in Ireland and actually through strategic management of the King's uh, representative in Ireland, Ormond, um, it doesn't sort of become the wide-scale panic that one might have. But that was what I was asking you earlier, Peter. Weren't the King's contacts in places like Ireland better than Oates's? So when Oates said, oh, there's going to be 20,000 people and 5,000 cover in Ireland, the King said, no, no, there aren't. My bloke over there says nothing like that's happening. In contrast to that, Oates was providing details of places um, and people that the the king could have no access to these Jesuit seminaries to counterbalance all of that so whilst some of the more implausible claims might have been tested there was such a a wealth of of, of salacious detail that needed investigating Um, so I think that's one of the reasons why you know the the bureaucracy couldn't creep into these corners uh, certainly in in Spain and, and, and France and actually, some of the real evidence is uh, in code. And I mean, you know, Oates has a lucky strike um, about the Duchess of York, James's um, wife's former secretary, Edward Coleman. Um, letters are found. Um, they do actually contain damaging details, but they take a long time to be decoded from sort of shorthand and things. Um, and in the end, as, as Coleman says, they, they have sort of extraordinary claims in them. They're not treasonable, but, you know, that sort of knowledge only was flushed out as a result of the plot investigation. I mean, we didn't, you didn't exaggerate, did we? I mean, there was this uproar, there were these huge marches, there was this fear, there were people's houses were raided. Mm-hmm. Well, that's um, one of the interesting factors. The streets of London are something to factor in here, because if you imagine in 1678 the revelations are made in September, you have, imagine yourself in the boots uh, of a Londoner on the street, you have this, the militia is doubled, Security around Whitehall and Westminster is really tight. This would be noticeable. There's Oates and the King's Militia running around London arresting people, searching houses. Proclamations are coming out almost daily asking for information. All this is confirming evidence that something is afoot. Then you have these wonderful slices of good fortune with Oates suggesting that Edward Coleman, um, the the, um, secretary to the Duchess of York, is involved in the plot and they've discovered a cache of letters. He couldn't have known that, but he just puts him in the frame and it happens. The death of Godfrey also, this comes in. as That's that's the fascinating thing, isn't it? And that that just boosts the the plot. The death of Godfrey is the fascinating. The other factor to bear in mind here is that the government loses control of the press. Um, So in May 1679, the government lost its ability to... Um, prevent print uh, from appearing on the streets that it hadn't already seen. And that leads to an enormous explosion in the amount of printed propaganda that's available on the streets. And that feeds this public appetite for news about the plot and stimulates it. And uh, there's this vast uh, sort of rumour mill which is um, encouraged by all this print um, and it's incredibly inventive um, uh, Roger Lestrange the um, chief propagandist for the government produces vast amounts of very lively propaganda um, to put casting doubt on um, Oates's testimony and then Oates's supporters come out and Oates himself comes out with um, printed uh, confirmations and so on so you get this really interesting printed debate going on I just can't quite comprehend and I'm sure you can, but I can't, how this man, who'd been such a disaster, without being silly about it, or without being, but fired, ejected, rejected, again and again, turned out to be able to put that thing together and hold it together. It seems 
It seems extraordinary. I mean, people at the time who watched him were bo- voiced exactly those sorts of opinions. You know, he's either the most adroit and greatest liar that ever existed, or he's telling the truth. But and it's actually it's always the sort of things that Mark's been talking about: the depth of detailed circumstantial evidence, um, you know, and this phenomenal memory. I mean, he's got you know, as all these students are out there preparing for exams, he's got exactly the skills that are required. He's got the ability of sort of intense, quick factual recall, an ability to marshal evidence, an ability to you know have lucky strikes. Um, but it remind me of these all sorts of witch hunts in, in the States, in Germany, here and so on. It had that dynamic, didn't Peter? Yes, and there were um, MPs were actually rooting out, trying to root out Catholics in, in the period. Um, when William Waller was very invested in, in trying to uncover um, subversive Catholic activity. And um, people made it their mission sometimes to go and t- take this opportunity to ferret out Catholics. Or in, to settle a private school. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know... The, one could argue the penal laws that Claire set out earlier weren't being enforced as rigorously as they might have been against Catholics, and this was the opportunity to stiffen those up and to root out Catholic priests that are hiding, to root out the Jesuits in England. I mean, even we, people we don't normally associate with this, I mean, Samuel Pepys, uh, you know, we tend to lose sight of Pepys, um, but, you know, Pepys's own clerk is cited as a witness um, in the murder of Barry Godfrey, and, I mean, actually, you know, there's a perfectly good alibi and he gets acquitted, but then Pepys himself finds himself in um, prison for six weeks in 1680 in his capacity as Admiralty of the Navy because he's been very close to James, Duke of York and the sort of, he's accused of piracy, popery and treachery. So popery can often get yoked to these other ways of settling scores. Um, and he's, I mean, he's bailed for a huge sort of £30,000 bail or something, I mean, about £2 million. Pounds. And it's a harrowing experience for Pepys because he's in prison on capital charges. It's worth also saying that you know, we touched on the political dimensions of this, but those political dimensions have major ramifications. So this is the period that sees the emergence of a two-party system in Britain for the first time with identifiable Whigs and Tories, labels that were to last another 150 years. And it's directly out of the Popish plot oh, ferment. Says that, yeah. Um, I'm saying it now. Uh, it's directly out of the Popish plot ferment that there's a major rethinking of political ideas. So John Locke um, and Algernon Sidney, who have this major imprint on uh, British political thought uh, and American political thought, um, start to write their major works uh, in the immediate aftermath of the Popish plot. Um, both of them sign a petition to Charles II, urging him to let Parliament sit in the autumn of 1680. Um, uh, And when he refuses to do that, um, they start thinking about, well, what are the proper limits of of the king's power? Um, And start to go back to uh, new principles of of government. We should have brought that in, yeah. Here's our producer, Simon Johnson. Sorry to stop this, but who would like tea or coffee? There are many more history and discussion programmes from Radio 4 to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio 4.